Thanks for a gorgeous day out and for this time of the year to celebrate your birth. I pray that you would guide us as we study your word now, that you would open our hearts. Thank you for this time and for your son in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're working our way through the doctrine of salvation and we're see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's coming up, so uh, don't worry about it. We will get through this information eventually. And then we're going to start the doctrine of the church. We're going to talk about what the church is and what the church should be. So that's going to probably start mid to end of January. That's about when it'll start, as soon as we get through all of this information. Today we're finishing up our vocabulary of salvation. We're going to talk about do uh, the doctrine of assurance and security. Security of salvation and assurance of salvation. So that's where we'll go next. What's the... Last week we talked about propitiation. We said this is one of those major words that you want to make sure is in your Bible version that you have. And what does it mean? It means satisfaction, right? It means God's wrath against sin was satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross. He perfectly satisfied God's wrath. And that allows God to forgive sin. And now we're going to talk about imputation. What is imputation? That word is used quite a bit in um, Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. And what it means is to, it's the act of one person adding something good or bad to the account of other. It's a, it's an addition. It's impute. And it comes from the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai um, is an accounting term. It was used in the accounting practices of those days and it means to credit to an account. So if I were to go in and pay some money, that money would be imputed to my account. It would be credited to my account. And this is a very rich word because it talks about how we can be forgiven. And there are three kinds of imputation that we see in Scripture. Let's turn to Romans 5. And we're going to look at Romans 5. Romans 5 is a, a very important passage when it comes to the doctrine of imputation. Romans chapter 5. The first part of Romans 5 we already went over. It talks about the results of justification. We did that when we talked about that topic. It talks about also propitiation. But let's look in verse 12. Pick up in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Um, what Paul needs to discuss here is how is it that we can receive the righteousness of God through Christ. And his first argument is, well, look how we all receive the condemnation of sin through Adam. And he goes back and he says, one man, just by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men for all the sin. This is called the federal headship view. We talked about this back in the doctrine of sin. When Adam sinned, what did he do? He affected all of us, right? His sin affected all. His sin was passed on to all. So when you're born, you have the imputed guilt of Adam. This is what we call imputed guilt. What does it mean to have the guilt imputed to you? As a baby, when you're born, God says, I'm going to take the sin that Adam did and I'm going to credit it to the account of that child. You say that's not fair. That's the way it is. Shut up. <laughs> because were, were we there with Adam, we would have all done what? Same. Same thing. We all fell in Adam. He is our head. He is our federal representative, so to speak. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. And that's what Romans 5.12 is saying here. As one man sinned, his sin, entered, for by one man sin entered the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And then it says here, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who had, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's unpack that. It said, uh, when Adam sins, sin entered the world, and death by sin... And then the Jew would say, well, how can, you, how can you have sin when there's no law, right? Because sin is what? The transgression of the law. Did they have the law in the Old Testament prior to the giving of the law? No. no. So how do you know there was sin in the world? 
You did. How do you know that? What's the proof that there was sin in the world? Everybody died. Everybody died, right? How do you know that there was sin prior to the giving of the law? Everybody died. Now, what Paul is talking about here is there, there may not have been this individual imputation of the guilt of the sinner, like they committing an act of sin, but the principle of sin, the original condemnation, was there. We call that original sin. Adam passed his original sin, his original guilt, on all men. And we know that because all died. Everybody died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those who did not sin like Adam sinned, they still died because they had the imputed guilt of Adam. And Adam was a type of him who was to come. Now, who would be the him who was to come? Jesus. Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, yet more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What's it saying? Well, when Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to all. Therefore, when Christ paid a perfect substitute, what could his righteousness be imputed to? All people, right? Now, theoretically, is it imputed to everybody? No, because no, not everybody's saved, right? So that's one of the differences. The difference is when Adam sinned, his guilt affected every human being. When Christ was righteous and died on the cross, his perfect righteousness can be imputed, potentially, to every human being. But theoretically, not theoretically, but practically, who is it imputed to? Those who believe, right? What Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to answer the question, how is it that the death of one man on a cross can affect me personally? And his, his response is, just like the, de the sin of one man affected you personally. You follow what Paul's doing here? Everybody awake? Yeah. Not partying too much? All right. Adam sinned, that sin went to every human being. Christ is righteous, that righteous potentially could go to every human being. But it only goes to those who believe. Now you've got to be careful when it says many and all here. He's using a literary device. It's not like, well, in Adam, many died. No, in Adam, how many died? All. All. It's, it's a literary device. He's using many in Adam, many in Christ. It's a so don't theologically say, well, in Christ, everybody gets to heaven. No, everybody does not get to heaven. Potentially, everybody could, right? Because it's an infinite sacrifice. It could potentially save every human being that ever lived. But practically, who is saved? Those who believe, those who respond. And that's what Paul is trying to get at here. Just as Adam's sin, his guilt is imputed to every human being, so Christ's righteousness can be imputed as well. So if you're talking to a non-believer, and if you happen to make that comparison, that's a little bit deeper yeah. to go to a non-believer. But what if that believer said, well, the logic would be that if Adam's sin was imputed to all men, then why would You would answer that by potentially yes, practically no, because it requires... Potentially yes, practically no. Yeah. It's the same thing. Did Christ die to save the sins of the world? Yes, being imputed by having sin imputed is yeah. not a choice. Right. But having Christ's Right. And, and that's, where, that's where the pure analogy breaks down. Yeah. And it's not a pure analogy here. It's not all died, in Christ, all died in sin, all are alive in Christ. It's not a pure analogy. But he's trying to say just as Adam's sin affected all of humanity, even so Christ's righteousness can potentially affect all of humanity. The rub in there is that there's an appropriation. How do I appropriate the righteousness of Christ? I believe that's what he's been talking about in the first four chapters. How is it that Abraham was justified by faith? He believed. How did David get it? By belief. How do we get it? By belief. But the reason we can get it is because there was an offering made that can be imputed to us. All right? And, and again, it goes back to Jesus died for the sin of the whole world. Well, yes and no. Yes, if you mean that 
did he die to cover every sin that ever was committed in its potential sense? Absolutely. Did he, does it mean that he died so that everybody's, all, all humanity is someday going to make it to heaven? No. It's the same concept. All right? Right. Yes. And then 17, for, it is, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, that, notice that, that's the appropriation, to receive it, and the, gift, and the free gift of righteousness in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. There's, there's a receiving there. And also it said death reigned by one. One of the great words here is much more. That's one of the key words here, much more. In Adam all died, much more in Christ all can be made alive. And, and in fact, Christ's death on the cross does more than just remove, and we talked about this, just, it does more than just bring you back up to innocent. It makes you righteous, right? It goes beyond just being innocent again. We have the perfect righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at me, when God looks at me through the, through the bar of God in, in the sense of eternal judgment, in the sense of, of my standing before him, what does he see? He sees me as righteous as Christ is. And I can't be any more righteous than that. And why is it that I have the righteousness of Christ? Because that righteousness of Christ was imputed, credited to my account. It was it was given to me, it was granted to me. And because of that, I stand before God perfectly righteous. I can't be any more righteous than I am in my standing because Christ is perfectly righteous. Now, that's, we're not talking about your practical, everyday sanctification. We're talking about as far as the judgment of God is concerned, as far as their eternal destiny is concerned, you are righteous. No. Right. And, and that's why you've got to split the two. There's, there, there's your standing and your state. And I think we talked about this earlier. Your standing before God is in perfect, holy righteousness if you're a believer. Your state goes up and down. Right. All right. Hopefully it's ascending. Hopefully it's on its way upward, but it goes up and down. But my standing is forever secured. So when, Christ, when God looks at me, he sees me as perfectly righteous. Not yet, practically. We will be. And that's when we get glorified, we become perfectly righteous, and then we won't be able to sin. I would think that we would forget about all the things that we have learned here on earth once we do become in that state of... Yeah, who wants to, who wants to remember this class in heaven? <laughs> you know? But, no, well, seriously, who wants to remember this life? You're going to go through heaven remembering well, this life? I mean... Uh, I don't we, think so. We, we right. But what Paul is trying to get at here in Romans 5 is this, this concept of imputation. Adam's sin was imputed, credited to the account of every human being. Even so, Christ's righteousness can be imputed to the account of every human being who believes, who responds in faith, who asks for it, who wants the righteousness of God. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now again, understand the all there in the second part does not mean every human being gets to heaven. It's talking about it in the potential sense, and how do you know that? Because other scriptures help us understand what Paul is doing here. He's using a literary device. And we understand that, right? You say, well, you know, everybody loves Elvis. Does everybody love Elvis? No. I don't. <laughs> But you're making a statement, right? Most people, theoretically, love Elvis, I guess. So we understand literary device. That's what Paul is using here. It's a literary device. For as by one man disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now again, many there means what? Got it? Contextual, you know, put in context. In Adam, everybody became unrighteous. In Christ, many will become righteous. And what did the law do? The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Um, you can't do it on their own. It's Grace that's tallying up the end of it. And, and quite honestly, my, my favorite hymn is Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Remember that song? Mm -hmm. um, I love that song because it says that no matter how much you sin, God's grace is greater. It's much more. It's much more. And what we, had, what we lost in Adam, we gained and much more in Christ. That's the point. What do we lose in Adam? We lost our innocence. What do we gain in Christ? We get our innocence back, plus we get the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We get much more. Christ, we get not only our innocence back, but we get much more. We get our righteousness. Was Adam righteous? No. He was innocent. Right? He was not righteous. He didn't do anything righteous. He was created innocent. He was created perfect. But Christ is righteous. How is Christ righteous? He completely fulfilled the law. He did everything the law required. Not only did he have innocence, he had perfect righteousness and obedience. And that is what gets credited to us. So when you talk about imputation, this is a very important concept. You've got the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. Then you've got in the middle there the imputation of the human race's sin to Christ on the cross. What did Christ do on the cross? He bore the sin of the entire world. Did he commit the sin of the entire world? No. He didn't, Christ did not become sin. Christ took upon himself the sin. It was imputed to him. It was credited to him. Follow? Did you do the righteousness of Christ? How do you have it then? It was credited to you, right? It's not that you did it. It's that it was credited to you. Did Christ commit the sins of the world? No. In what sense did he have them imputed to them? They were credited to him as though he had done them. So when Christ hung on the cross, what did he do? He took upon himself the sin of the entire world. How much of it? All of it. Every murder, every evil act, everything that was ever committed in all of human history, he bore on the cross. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his. The upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. That goat on the Day of Atonement, did that goat commit the sins of Israel? No. no, but it took upon itself the sin of Israel and was led away into the wilderness. It was that sin was imputed to that goat as though that goat had done it, although the goat didn't sin. I guess I'm talking over the word innocent, but I have to get back to the okay. definition of innocent. Well, what does innocent mean? Well, it means not guilty, but it means it means you didn't do anything bad. You didn't do anything good. You just okay. Because where, where, you know, when somebody okay, they have never committed a particular sin, so they are innocent of that sin. Then they commit it, and even though they're forgiven, they're no longer really, truly, truly innocent. No. But God, but but when we have the imputed guilt, or yeah, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not only are we restored to the state of innocence, we're also plus made righteous. Right. Think of innocence as, as, as neither good nor bad. Did Adam do anything before, before Adam's sin? Did he do anything bad? Did he do anything good? No, he was, I mean, he, he, yeah, he existed. He walked with God, but he didn't do any righteous act. He didn't, you know, he was innocent. Right, but, but in Christ, we have the right, God looks at us as though we, fully, this is what's far out. God looks at me as though I fully fulfilled every law he ever made. Completely, with the right heart attitude. Not only am I innocent, but I am righteous. I am, I am just like him. I'm as righteous as he is. Because my mind can grasp the purity of righteousness, but also restoring innocence just is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Miraculous. He restored, and, and the point that Paul is making in Romans 5 is what we lost in Adam, we got back and then a whole lot more yeah. in Christ. Mm 
We just didn't get moved back up to the innocent stage. We got beyond that. We are righteous as Christ is. Right. And that's one of the things he makes here. And one of the things he's saying here in this passage is that every human being is identified with one of two Adams, the old or the new. You're, you're identified with Adam the first or you're identified with Adam the second. Christ is the second Adam. And that's the type he's talking about. There's a type. Maybe a bad way to illustrate this, I'm just, I've been reading war books for whatever reason, you know. And... Uh, you know, think of a soldier going off to battle. He goes off to battle, he does his thing. He does what a soldier's supposed to do, right? But he doesn't get a medal for it. Because he's doing what a soldier's supposed to do. But if he does some, some act of valor above and beyond the call of duty, all right, what does he get? A medal. A medal. He, that, that's above and beyond. If he hightails it out of the battle and, and, and defects from the battle... He's AWOL, right? That's a ba it's a bad analogy, but you know, think of the innocent soul. He's the one who just does his thing, but he doesn't get medals for it. And that's sort of like Adam, you know, he, before he sinned, he just did his thing, but he didn't do anything meritorious. He didn't storm any beach. He didn't, yeah. But in Christ, what did Christ do? Christ not only, he, he did the righteous deeds. He earned all the medals. He did the beyond, above and beyond the call of duty. And because of that, we have that righteousness imputed to us. Bad analogy, but I, maybe it'll get it, the, the picture across a little bit. Yeah. And you're getting it, because that's, that's what God wants you to get. He wants you to understand how amazing this thing is. But you did bring up a good point. I mean, while you're in a war, you're getting shot at. Yeah. But the point, we get more in Christ than we lost in Adam. That's the point. We get much more in Christ than we lost in Adam. But what God did on the cross is he took the guilt of every human being and he imputed that to Christ as though Christ did it. All right? Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Don't ever say that this whole concept of imputation is missing in the Old Testament. There it is. What did the righteous servant do? He took upon himself the sin and made many righteous by taking their sin, by paying the debt of their sin. And when next time you want to go out and commit an act of sin, just think that that sin that you're contemplating, Christ took upon himself on the cross to pay it in full for you. And remember we said God did not go easy on Christ because he was his son. Christ got the full wrath of God, unmixed, poured out on him as though he had done it all. So you've got the imputed guilt of Adam to us. You've got the imputed sin of humanity to Christ. And then again, the third thing we were talking about here, Christ's righteousness to the, to the believer. What enables me to stand righteous before God? I have the imputed righteousness of Christ granted to me. Yeah. And Romans 3, 7 through 9 talks about this. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. What gain did Paul have? Well, he just enumerated it. I'm a I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew parents. I'm pure-blooded Hebrew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm zealous concerning the law. I mean, Paul, if you want to get a curriculum vitae of what Paul did, I mean, he did every possible thing imaginable to make himself righteous before God. And then he said, when I saw that, and I saw the righteousness of Christ, I counted it but loss. He said, indeed I count, logizomai, to, to reckon. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Human excrement, filthy, icky, yuck. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, you know, I had a, a, a certain kind of righteousness by the law. As best as I could, I was keeping it. And there's a certain level of righteousness that you can get there, but it's not good enough. It's going to fall short. 
because it's done with my own human effort. No matter how good I am and how hard I work, I'm always in the end of the day going to come up just a little bit short of that. What kind of righteousness do I need to stand before God? I need His righteousness. And how do I get that? By Christ. Yeah. No. And we can't. In our own selves, we can't do a perfectly righteous thing. Christ could. He did. And that goodness, that righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us. So what's the whole upshot of this? When Christ, well not when Christ, when God looks at Alan Schaefer, he sees me as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ. As far as the penalty of God is concerned, as far as my eternal destiny is concerned, as far as my home in heaven is concerned, I am as righteous as Christ is. And that's the only way I would ever get there. And why am I righteous as Christ is? Because it is indeed his righteousness that has been imputed to me. If you want to think of another, if you're a bean counter, think of a ledger book. And on one side you have every sin that you've ever committed. And it fills, you know, pages and pages and pages. And the penalty, the, the payment for all those, on the other side is death and hell forever. Death and hell forever. And Christ comes along and he takes that book and he takes his perfect righteousness and puts it on the other side and cancels every one of those debts in full. And so what do you have in your ledger book after Christ? You have his perfect righteousness, an infinite asset, and every sin that you could ever commit would never draw down that infinite asset one bit. You can't outsin the righteousness of Christ. You can't outsin His grace. It's a pretty heavy thought. You've got to think about that a little bit. It's like having a, a credit card that no matter what you put on it, it doesn't diminish the value of the card. You can go out and buy anything and it doesn't reduce the debt. I, I can see people liking that idea, you know. <laughs> having a $400 trillion credit limit. You know, you can't, you, you know, you can't, you can't exhaust it. And that's, that's what the righteousness of Christ is. You can't exhaust it. But more importantly, that it keeps getting paid off. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing, and see, that's a good point, because in the heart of the true believer, once you get it, once you really understand what God has done, once you understand His grace, that does not make you want to go out and sin. That's correct. And that's but Paul said, should I keep sinning so the grace may abound? Heavens, no. That's my analogy. I, after coming to the Lord, you know, I used to be a good guy. But when you come to the Lord, you realize how lousy you really are. Mm -hmm. And even though you accept His righteousness as a free gift of His grace, you still walk through life, and unless you... Maybe I haven't fully embraced grace, but I still look at myself and say, you know what, you're, you're a sinner. Yeah. You're really a sinner. And the things I, and sometimes I just wonder, why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep falling into the same sin scenario? Because of your flesh. Because I fled. And I, yeah. I struggle, I struggle with that. And, and, and the I thing is... I expect to be fully righteous. Right. I know that's not the case, but... But hopefully what you've seen... Peaks and bells. It's peaks and valleys, but hopefully they're going up. Hopefully you're making your way up. All right? And we all struggle with that. That's, that's the process of sanctification. That's what we battle, what we fight. But a true believer, if you show me someone who says, well, God's forgiven me, I can go and commit any sin, I'm going to have at it. That shows someone who really doesn't understand what Christ did. And maybe they're not even a Christian if they're going to presume on that. It's, it's immaturity at best. At best, it's immaturity. It may be that they're not even a Christian. You show me someone who sins and it says, it doesn't matter if I sin because God's forgiven me of it anyways. Ah, that's dangerous ground to be treading on. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. That, that is presuming on the nature and character of God. And the true believer would not want to do that because the true believer says, I understand what it costs Christ to forgive me and I don't want to add to 
his suffering by me going out and committing sin. Right. It's okay because she'll forgive me anyways. Yeah. Right. You got it. You, you understand it. You understand it perfectly. You know, if I love my wife, I'm not going to do things knowingly to hurt her. Because I'm going to say, well, she'll forgive me anyways, you know. Well, she might. She might hit me with a rolling pin, too. But I don't presume, I don't presume on, on my relationship because I love her. And, and if you love God, you're not going to presume on God's relationship. Is it true that you can't out God's grace? Absolutely. But that does not say, hey, and that's what he answers in verse 1 of chapter 6. Shall we go on and continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, if God's grace is evidenced by my sin, I'll just sin it up and I'll really make him look good when he shows his grace. No, I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. Girls would do, yeah, and all that. <laughs> that's one of the. Th- yeah, that's an important phrase you use. Get lost. Before you can get a person saved, you got to get them lost. In the sense that they got to realize they're really lost. Yeah, and that was the problem with the Pharisees. Why? Why did Christ have such a rough time with them? Well, they thought they were righteous. What do we need forgiveness for? Good night. We're righteous. They, they didn't see the need for the physician. They were healthy. You know, maybe a, another bad analogy. It's bad analogy, Sonny. Another bad analogy. I can think I'm a pretty good artist because I can draw really cool stick figures. But then you take me and bring me over to the Louvre and look at some of those paintings on the wall and all of a sudden my little stick figures, you know, they just don't measure up to what those guys can do, which is amazing. Um, we think we're good in our own little stick figure world of righteousness and then we look at the, the perfect paintings that Christ can do and we say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not as good as I am. Same thing with playing golf. You know, I'll go out and play a round of golf and think I'm doing pretty good, you know, on this little podunky golf courses around here, you know, and, and thinking I'm doing really great and then if I were to match up against Tiger Woods, I'd get smashed into the ground, you know. I mean, there would be no comparison because it's what you compare yourself to. If you're comparing yourself to all the bums that you scoff with, you're, you may be pretty good, but then you go against someone like a Tiger Woods or a, you know, a, a Arnold Palmer or somebody like that, you realize just how bad you are. You know. No, I, I'm talking about his athletic abilities at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had no joy, you had no peace, you had no relaxation, you had nothing but strength because the whole covenant was nothing but a condemning covenant. And, you know, so the Pharisees, you know, they, they just tried to, well, we're going to bring God down, we're going to raise us up a little higher, some more from all we're going to work our way up to God. Yeah, we bring, him, we bring God down, us up, we can meet. Can't meet. And what was the law? The law was our schoolmaster. What's the schoolmaster? It's a tutor. It's a tutor. Bring us. Yeah, and, and probably the best analogy, analogy Sunday, I'm sorry, is children, right? I mean, Marshall, you know, you have two kids, you know, and, and they're small. They've got all kinds of rules, you know, bedtime, what to eat, you know, what to wear. Lots of rules. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of rules growing up as kids. But as they mature, as their relationship between themselves and their parents mature, what happens to those rules over time? More grace. They go away, right? They go away because as they mature in their relationship, the need for the rule is gotten away from because now you have a principle, a relationship there. They're learning 
All right. So when it gets to the point when they're 20, 21, 22 years old, it would be silly for Marshall to say, hey, it's bedtime, 9 o'clock. They're 21. They're, they're adults now. All right? What's the principle? The principle is I get up the next day and do whatever my activities are, no matter how late I stay up. I don't, and that's, that's, what, that's sort of the analogy of the law. The law was there early on to, to give us those strict guidelines, but it was never intended to end there any more than the rules that you have for your children are designed to be there their entire life. As they grow, as they mature, as that relationship changes, my relationship with my parents now are totally different than what it was when I was five or six years old. Well, I heard you revert back when you get older. You know? <laughs> no, now I'm parenting the parents. But, 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 but you, see, you see what's going on there, and that's what Paul's trying to do. The law, was, it was strict. It was like Marshall said, it was rules, and, and we needed that because we were not mature, but the law was never intended to just leave us there. It was to bring us to... A relationship. And now, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to do those things that please Him. Right. And the need for the law is removed because of it's a principle of love. And that's what Christ said. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you love your neighbors yourself, on this hang all the law and the prophets. You get those two down, everything else sort of sorts itself out. Well, there is no Yeah. And if Marshall's kids get to the point, hopefully, where they love him and his wife... They do things because they want to please their parents, not because they're going to get punished. They're going to have something wrong if they don't do it. It's going to be a, a heart of gratitude, a heart of love. And there's going to be a fullness of, of joy and an expression of relationship there. So, uh, it'll get there. It'll get there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's time. And what the unbelievers will tend to do is use other people as measuring sticks. Right. And to get them to shift from that to Christ is, is work too, because they'll say, well, that person you tell me is a believer and they're doing such and so. And it's so no different when his two kids argue because one of them can do something that the other one can't. Right? You don't have that problem, do you? Yeah. It's the same thing. Well, well, Johnny can do that, yeah, but Johnny is four years older than you. I mean, we, you, if you've had kids, you relate to that. You know? And, and it's the same thing, and it's, it's, it's maturity. Another point that goes is um, we violated the relationship with God. He has the right to define the terms of reconciliation. And we don't define those terms. And whenever you go into down that path that, you know, well, I'm better than that person, you, you're defining the terms. Right. You can't define the terms. You have no right to define the terms. You've got to go out, what do you want? And God will tell you what he wants. Yeah, and God tells you your good is not good enough. And you're just going to have to go with that. Or you're going to be like Cain, right? 
offering of grain is good enough. And God says, no, that's not what I asked for. Well, it's good enough. No, it's not good enough. And we got to go with what God wants, not with what we want. But this is an amazing, this, this here is an amazing concept, this imputation that makes us as righteous as Christ. And that is something that, you know, I've been pondering for many years and I still haven't got my head wrapped all around yet. It is. Well, I think a lot of the, a lot of the challenge in America is the fact, this is my perception, the church in America is not doing the job. No. The church in America is not teaching people. Yeah. Well, you're not smart enough to figure this stuff out. You realize right, that. We're not. But, I mean, we, we watched, uh, yeah. Rick Warren was on today's show the other day for Christmas. He missed, he missed, he missed the point. He, missed he had an opportunity. He's, he's on national television. Minutes. Yeah. He could have drilled it right between the bullseye. Yeah, if you're following Rick Warren too much, shame we on you. Saw, and we, turned on, we saw yeah. a brief a presentation by Joe Holstein and his wife, Victoria. Uh, they don't, they don't get it either. Yeah. I shouldn't say Rick Warren. The opportunity was yeah. yeah. Oh, it got to be PC. You know, you don't want to freak out anybody who doesn't believe like we do. Yeah, the, the church yeah. in America, across all denominational, non-denominational lines, is not doing general. Well, what we're doing is we're running, we're running from doctrine. And that, you know, that's why we did this course here at the Open Door, because we wanted people to be exposed to this. And, and quite honestly, if you, if you guys have learned stuff in here? Yeah. And now, you're not theologians, but you understand the language. You understand what the Bible is talking about. You're understanding some of these, what would be considered essential doctrines that make us what we are. And there's a long way, I mean, I've got a long way to learn on this stuff too. But we can't run from this stuff, say, oh, my brain hurts, I can't figure it out. Come on. You know, we've got people today that, that can figure this stuff out. And when you have theological, in the theological world, well, you know, people in the church, you're just not smart enough to figure out these deep theological truths. We're going to have to dumb it down for them because they're not going to figure it out on their own. You're, you're, you're slapping them in the face. You're just saying they're ignorant. Yeah. I was raised in the Lutheran church. There was no grace in the Lutheran mm -hmm. church. And that's probably why I struggle with the aspect of grace. Yeah. I know for me, one thing this class has done is I actually enjoy turning on TV and listening to some of these pastors and because I enjoy using my mind and actually, actually listening and saying, hey, something's wrong here. I mean, I Yeah. So, uh, this class has taught me to listen and to be able to be discerning. So we do mm -hmm. this class every day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, every day. Every day. <laughs> but I enjoy teaching. Anyways, let's uh, go on to the next topic, security and assurance. We don't have notes for this. That's my fault. I got them done late Friday night. I did them on Christmas Day. All right, so. All right. But, um. Anyways, uh, let's, let's just start this topic of security and assurance. We're, when we talk about this is one of the, it's interesting, I was listening to, I think, MacArthur, John MacArthur talked, he said the, probably the number one question and issue he faces as a pastor is people asking, how do I know I'm a Christian? He said it's probably the number one issue that people struggle with is their security and their assurance of salvation. And I think most of us in here, those of us who are born again, We've been down that path. We've been through that valley, I think. I have. I know, you know, sometimes I look and say, are you really sure you're in? Um, we've all faced that. Um, and so this is a very important topic to talk about and see what the scripture says. And we, when we approach this, there's really two aspects. This. The first one is what we call security. Security answers a question, can you lose your salvation? That's what security is. If you're truly born again, if you've truly come through the narrow gate, can you lose your salvation? Can you become unsaved? All right? Now, there are some religious traditions that say you can. All right? 
And we'll talk about this concept of security here. All right? But that's the question. Can you become unsaved? Can you lose your salvation? The assurance question asked, or assurance issue asked the question, how can I know I'm redeemed? How can I know that? Salvation may be secure, but how do I know I have it? You understand the difference between the two questions? One is saying, is it secure? The second question is, okay, it's, if it's secure, how do I know I've got it? How do I know that I'm truly born again? How do I know I'm a true Christian? And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks as we work through this. When you look at security of salvation, um, people will throw a barrage of verses at you. And this is where you really need to, to analyze the context of the verses, the context of the passage, and understand what's going on here. All right? And basically there are four major areas where people get confused on this thing. Some argue against the security of salvation by using passages that refer to false teachers to refer to believers. All right? Who is a false teacher? Yeah, they deny Christ. They deny the fundamental doctrines. They're not Christians. All right? And so some people say, they read a passage and say, oh, that, that verse is saying I can lose my salvation. No, that verse is, not, verse is not saying you can lose it. That verse is talking about maybe false teachers. An example here is 2 Peter 2.20. Okay? Let's read this. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better off for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned again to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter's talking about false teachers in this passage, apostates, okay? Now, what is an apostate? That's a good question, apostate. It comes from the Greek word apostasia, to turn from, to turn away from, okay? An apostate is not a believer. An apostate is someone who is exposed to the truth but has never made a confession to that truth. They have never appropriated that truth, all right? They may know a lot about the Bible, they may know a lot about what it means. They might have a comprehension of what Jesus can do, but there's no personal appropriation. They have never taken, remember in our acronym F-A-I-T-H? They've gotten the F down, the A down, the I down, but they've never gotten to the T part. They've never trusted. They've never made that commitment. Who's the one primary apostate in the Bible? Judas Iscariot. The guy's, you know, he's apostate number one. He's, you know, if you want to say, you know, if you had a dictionary of Bible terms and it said apostate, you could say, see also Judas. Because what did Judas have? Three years, Three years personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ, right? Yep. He watched Christ do miracles. He watched Christ raise the dead. Did he benefit by hanging around Christ? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was he able to cast out demons? He's one of the twelve, yeah. Was he a believer? No. no. Never was. Never was. And when the time came for him to make a choice, who did he choose to go with? Sure. Satan. He chose to go his own way. He sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He never was a believer. He never was one of the twelve, in the true sense of the word. Was that, was that of his own free will? Yes. And no. But the Bible would, Bible would focus on he chose not to. Okay? An apostate, understand this, an apostate is not someone who is a believer. An apostate is someone who knows the truth, knows, has full information, full knowledge, full understanding of what it means and what is required, but they turn away from that and go the other way. Yeah. They come right up. It's like, it's like what it says in Hebrews. They come right up to the edge of the promised land Oh, there's giants, and they go the other way. That's an apostate. And isn't there a description of apostate in Hebrews 6? Yes. Okay. Hebrews is full of that. 
Hebrews, is a, he, really the warning of Hebrews is a warning to people who are right on the edge. They're about ready to make their commitment to Christ. They're about ready to go all the way. And he says, if you turn around and go away, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You, you, you're, you're, you're sinning against full night light, full knowledge, full revelation. There's no hope for you. If you turn your back on full knowledge, what more can God do? You've already, he's already given you all the information you need. And if you're not going to take it, what more can he do? There was a woman in my morning class that compared it to when you're tasting something that is incredibly delicious and you have it in your mouth and you're rolling it around in there that you never swallow. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Analogy Sunday. That's a good analogy. Yeah. And that's the important thing to understand. And what Peter's talking about here is not true believing people. He's talking about apostates. There, and, and you see these on TV all the time. There are guys that come on and they, they sound like God. They, 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 they use Jesus talk and God talk. And they're even moral. You know, they talk about a certain level of morality. But somewhere along the line, there, there's no real substance to that. There's no real faith to that. And what happens is they escape the pollutions of the world. There's a sense in which they escape a little bit, the pollutions of the world, but what's going to happen because there's no true faith? They're going to be sucked back into the world. And when they're sucked back into the world, the latter end is worse than the first, right? They initially escaped it, but now they're sucked back into it. And I've seen that. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen people supposedly come forward, supposedly be saved, supposedly accept Christ. They were baptized. But later on, it turns out there was no real substance there. There was no real faith. There was no real trust. And what happened is they got sucked back into the world, and they now become some of the most bitter, angry, resentful, spiteful people that you'll ever run into this side of heaven. Because they, they almost got out, but they got sucked back into the dirt. And it's because there was no reality of faith there. Okay? So one of the things to understand is there are passages in the Bible that deal with these professors, these false people, who appear to be saved. Simon Magus is another one. Remember him in Acts 8? I mean, he went forward. He got baptized. He joined the church. He was the next guy on the elder board. And then Peter shows up. And what does Peter see? No salvation at all. He never had it. And in fact... Again, church history tells us he became a great enemy of the faith. He was right up to the edge, almost went the other way. And if you do that, there's no more sacrifice for sin. And some and these passages that deal with it are not talking about true believers. So I was talking about apostates. We already talked a little bit about them. This is the Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 passage. One of the most hotly debated passages in the Bible on this whole topic. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, saying they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What's it mean there? Well, think of, go back into history and think about the average person, we'll call him Joe, who saw Christ. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He heard the messages of Christ. And what did he not only hear the messages of? He got some of the bread. He got some of the food that Christ made there. And not only that, maybe he came there and he was sick. And Christ healed him. And he heard the message and he heard the truth of Christ. And he heard all of that. But when it came down to the, down to the end and he had to make a choice between Christ and his Jewish traditions, he chose the Jewish traditions instead. That's what it's talking about here. It's talking about somebody who comes up to the edge. He knows who Christ is. He may have even partook of some of the value of being around Christians or even being around Christ in that, in that particular instance. There are people alive who saw Christ. There are people alive who knew about the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. There may have even been some that were healed by Christ. Think of those, remember the ten lepers? 
Christ healed ten lepers. How many of them came back and thanked them? One. And notice what Christ said. Your faith has healed you. Wait a minute. He healed ten of them. Why did he say that to that man? Because that man got more than just the physical healing. He got, phys he got spiritual healing as well. Ten were touched by Christ. One made it to heaven. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. It's possible to taste the heavenly gift. It's possible to be somewhat of a benefactor of what it means to be around Christians or even partake of some of the graces of God. But if you don't go all the way, if you don't take Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't make a full commitment and you turn back and go the other way, there's no more hope for you because you've sinned against full light. How can God renew you again to repentance? He's already brought you up to the point. He's given you all the information you need. And if you go away from that, what more can God give you? Right? What more can he tell you? He's given you all the information. You have full light. You have full revelation. Apostasy is sinning against full knowledge and full revelation. So does he therefore not have righteousness? No. So you can lose righteousness? He never had it to begin with. This is the point. Apostates never had it to begin with. They were close. Um, the Israelites that went out of Egypt, was there a blessing of being part of Israel at that time? Yeah, you, you, you escaped Egypt, you went through the Red Sea, and when, where did you die? In the desert. In the desert. Why? You came right up to the edge of the Promised Land and you said, we're done. God brought us out here to kill us. They gave up. All right. So was there a certain benefit of being there? Yeah. I mean, you partook of blessings. You partook of the manna. But you died because you did not believe. You did not go all the way. Well, it says Simon the sorcerer believed himself and was right. He believed. He believed the facts. Right. But his heart, Peter said, your heart is And that's, you know, this is a naughty that people don't like talking about. But most of the time when, you, when you're arguing this with your friends and people say, well, you can lose your salvation because I know Joe, who is a Christian, he's not saved now. Well, Joe never had it. Joe came up to the edge. Joe looked like he believed, but he turned his back on it and went the other way. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember. I, I, I accepted Christ 25 years ago. But I hate God. I hate Christ. I hate the Bible. I hate Christians. But I'm saved because I prayed the prayer. Yeah. Security is not... You understand, if you're truly born again, it's forever secure. But the question is, are you truly born again? We're going to talk about that in the assurance part here. But the thing to understand is there are the, a lot of these passages that talk about people who have tasted, they've, they, they've partook to some extent, they've been exposed to, but they've not gone all of the way. And that's the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, look, you've got to go all the way. You can't just come up to the edge. And then go back. And go back. You've got to go all the way through. You, and if you don't go all of the way through, as a, and he's writing to Hebrew Jewish people, if you don't go all the way through the salvation, you go back to the old covenant, there's no more sacrifice for sin there. That blood of the bull and the goat isn't going to cover any of your sin. And not only that, what are you saying about the, the death of Christ if you do that? He was a criminal. He's an imposter. He should have died. You deny the blood of Christ. That's what it means to deny the blood of Christ. You come up to the edge and and look, folks, that's the dangerous thing that we have. We have a lot of people today, they come right, right to the edge, and they're just about ready to go all the way, but for some reason, through fear, through whatever, they turn and they go the other way. What is it to go all the way within your heart? Yes. It's, it's a full commitment. It's, it's to abandon yourself fully. Even though the heart is and, that, and that's, that's, well, see, that's the salvation event. That's where God comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Regeneration. We talked about the black box. But if you're truly born again, you go, you're all in. It's not like you have a few chips that you keep in the back pocket just in case. You're all in. Or you're not. Yeah. So do you think there is such a thing as a backslidden Christian? 
if you mean by backslidden Christian, a Christian who lives in disobedience, yes. If that's a state of existence, no. Because God is going to either take you home or chastise you. Because that's the other thing. Some people say, well, you know, he's just a backslidden Christian. You know, he, he was saved, you know, 25, 30 years ago. He's just backslidden. If, if, if that is his state of existence, I would question his salvation. I really would. Can, can I at some point for a period of time backslide? Well, David did, right? But did God let him stay there? No. No, he didn't. God, God intervened fairly quickly. That's all part of that spiking, is it not? It may be part of that spiking. And how do you know Judas was an apostate? Because he never repented. He turned and went and, and kept going. And, and, and see, that's the warning. That's what's so tough about this, because we want nice things, black and white, you know, in, out. Look, the scripture tells us constantly, how do, how do I as an Adam, how does Alan Schaefer know that Alan Schaefer is truly born again? Because I don't quit. I haven't turned back. You, you have an you have an sense by the Holy Spirit about the sin that you're in. Right. If you ask some of those so-called saved, many of them know they're in sin. Yeah. They know they are willfully. Yeah. But, but that is it not? Is it yeah. And hold, by your holding fast, that's an indicator that you are of the house of God. Right. How do you know that you're born again? Because you persevere. How do you persevere? Because God is holding on to you. But you persevere. And it's because we desire that clarity. Right. We, we never truly arrive, yeah. but we, we always know deep within our souls, within our being, that that is what we desire. That is right. what we need, that is the only thing that satisfies. Best, best analogy I can give you, I have followed a brown game in 20 years. I reclaimed my Sunday afternoons after the drive and the fumble. You know, I, I, I'm not a fan, right? I'm not, a true, I'm not a true believer. You got over that. That's good. You're a Browns apostate. All right. But but another, you know, another passage on this is 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 um, First John chapter two. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they went out from us that it might be manifest. They were not all of us. And Christ talked about this in the parable of the soils, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, it falls on the shallow ground, it sprouts up, and you say, wow, wonderful, ha hallelujah, and then what happens? Well, you know, a little bit of persecution comes along, and it cares of this world, and it dies. It never goes anywhere. The point is this. Apostasy is a very real danger to people. And a lot of times when you look at someone who you think lost their salvation, it's not that they lost it. They never had it. They came close, as, what is it, Felix said, almost you persuade me. Almost. Almost persuading. We can say that of anybody, though. But you don't go the whole way. I mean, as much as you're teaching, you can, and we don't. I mean, you can fall Yeah, I can't go around and say, he's an apostate, he is and he is. He, I don't know that. I don't know that. All I can do is say, look, the Bible says that there's a class of people who have come up to the edge. They're not truly born again. They know all the facts. They know all the information. But for whatever reason, they've not gone all in. And because of that, there's no true saving faith there. They've not truly been born again. They've not made the change from death to life. And if they turn around and go back, they're in sore shape because there's no way for God to bring them back to that point of repentance. They may be lost forever. Yeah. I never knew you. Well, we cast out demons in your name. Good night. We've done all these works. I don't know who you guys are. That's the danger, and that's the call for individually. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. We're going to talk about that. Prove yourselves. All right, Marshall, you're going to say something. Yeah. And that's within a, a century of Jesus' crucifixion. You go from beware of apostasy, written by Peter, you get to Jew and says they're already here in church. And that's what scares me about, you know, again, I don't know if Joel Osteen is an apostate or not. It sort of looks like one to me. But here's someone who talks about escaping the pollutions of the world, talks about a certain level of morality. 
But the question is, is there real saving faith behind that? Do I know for certain? No, I don't. Don't say it, I do. I don't. But it bothers me when you ask someone like that, how is it that you're truly right before God and they waffle on what it means to be a Christian? There's something wrong there. Well, I don't want to say that because that's not politically correct. I don't want to say that. Look, it's true or it's not. And that's, it, it's, a, it's something we need to ponder. So we'll talk about this more next week. So we're out of time. Father, thank you for this day you've granted. And uh, help us to ponder these truths, put them in our hearts and think about them and meditate on them. And we thank you for this opportunity we have had to study in Christ's name. Amen.